Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, uh, David Shore, is a, um, I feel like he's been on everybody's podcast except this one uh, over the past uh, year or so. But, you know, we we talk all the time. He's a very smart guy, one of the smartest uh, analysts of the political scene. And I'm really glad to have you here. Welcome. And I actually wanted to talk way back to the 2016 campaign because you worked on that. And, you know, you do polling, public opinion analysis, uh, that kind of thing. And I remember after Hillary Clinton lost, there was obviously an incredible amount of second guessing. Like, how did this go wrong? What went wrong? Blah, blah, blah. And I always thought that, like, the most underrated point there is that the campaign did the strategy that they did because they thought they were winning, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And I mean, I I just like important to remember that, right? That like, if the polls they had been looking at had said they were losing, they would have done something different. But they thought they were winning. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I I think I I like to joke that I have a boring consultant driven theory of change that, you know, a lot of people on the left, you know, they, they tell this story that, you know, the reason why the Hillary campaign focused on these cultural issues and didn't, you know, talk about these economic issues, you know, was due to their donor base, you know, not wanting to, you know, being neoliberal shills, not wanting to piss off capital. And, you know, I, I think working in the industry mechanically, the way that politicians choose, you know, what to talk about and what not to talk about, especially back then, is that they would go to traditional pollsters and they would do these, you know, 400 person surveys and they'd go and they'd read the messages and see how they respond. And then they'd make some memos. And that's what determine, you know, uh, what, what you run on. And I think in 2016, there was this problem. Obviously, the polls were all wrong. Uh, everyone going into it thought that Democrats would win in a landslide and have a trifecta and all of this other stuff. You know, the, I think the reason why the polls were wrong, I mean, obviously, I think you're making a point that there were lots of problems that I think were clear to people. But you wouldn't take a bunch of political risks if you're ahead by 10 points in the polls. Like if you no one, I think if you're actually a Democratic staffer on the ground, you're never you're going to think, oh, should I should preserve my political capital. I shouldn't put my neck out to argue with potentially influential people. Um, And then you kind of have a whole mass of people doing that because they think everything's going well. But I do want to talk just a little bit about you know, why the polls were wrong, because I think it intersects with this strategic thing that we were talking about, which is, you know, our main theory for why the polls were wrong in 2016 was this issue of non-response bias, that basically the people who were answering these surveys were very different 
than the people who weren't answering these surveys. And in particular, they were different on one key variable, which is social trust. The GSS, uh, like the government, there's a big government survey they do every two years uh, where they ask people, do you trust the people around you? Or, you know, do you think that people can't be trusted? And, you know, that the percentage of people who say that people can't be trusted has fallen by like 20 to 30 percent in the past 50 years, which is probably very concerning. But one like really operational thing is that people who say that they don't trust the people around them are substantially less likely to answer phone surveys. And that used to not be a very big deal because it used to be that politics was about whether or not you believed in universal health care, not a question of whether you believe in conspiracy theories or whether you trust institutions. But Donald Trump really changed, you know, what it meant, what it meant to be a Democrat uh, in this country. And if you look at this, you know, everyone talks about college versus non-college. But if you look among non-college voters, you know, non-college voters who say that people can be trusted trended toward Democrats in 2016. And the ones who said that that people can't be trusted trended toward Republicans. And so there was this kind of silent majority of kind of cranky, conspiratorial, non-college whites. Well, so here, this is this is a super important point, right? Because, you know, when we we divide the population into demographic groups, you know, like in all different ways for, for different purposes. And part of what you do normally when you do that is you are like trying to use attributes that it's easy to look up. Right. So, you know, if you if you like want to figure out like, well, is somebody a man or a woman? Is this a black guy? Is it a white guy? Uh, you can do that. Right. And you can you can ask someone very quickly on the phone, like, do you have a college degree or not? And if you look up in the census, right, like the American Community Survey, it says, OK, this is a high education county. This is a low education county. If I want to make a map or a scatter plot based on race, gender, education, age, you know, it's like it's moderately difficult. You have to know what you're doing, but it's it's easy to look this stuff up. Sometimes we can say, okay, like racial identity is a salient element of American politics and has been for a long time. The education divide, you know, we've gotten used to talking about it a lot over the past four or five years, but it's a little mysterious because like nobody articulates themselves as like, as a college graduate, I believe, right? Like that's not how people, how people operate, but college graduates and working class people just differ along a lot of different dimensions. And part of what you're saying here is that this is, there's like a psychological construct that's actually driving the political change and the trusting people are just more likely to have gone to college. That's right. You know, this, this divide that we see between you know educated people and uh, uneducated people isn't like a mechanical implication of having having degrees. You know there are people who you know get nursing degrees who are still quite conservative. It's more that there happen to be these two groups of people who really differ substantially on a variety of attitudinal and psychological measures. You know social trust is a really big one. If you look at racial resentment, it is unsurprisingly also very salient. You know, if you look at, you know, the psychometrics, people like to talk about openness to new experiences that, you know, some people when they see novel stimuli, like get excited and energized and other people like experience pain. And that also happens to be super correlated with education. And in 2016, all of these things became much more correlated with politics. And it's very hard to say like, ah, this was the thing or that was the thing. But from a measurement perspective, it just happens to also be true that these people weren't answering surveys. And so that means that, you know, the public and the Democratic Party were kind of flying blind. You know, they were making all of these decisions on the basis that these people didn't exist. Um, and then it turned out that they did.
Right. And, and, you know, I mean, again, just to, it's like such a banal point, but it's like, I think sometimes people think, well, I thought Hillary was going to win because like I read Nate Silver or like I saw some dumb poll in the New York Times, but like this campaign, like they were blundering. But like they had the same, like the exact same bad information as anybody else. And it led to a different approach, right, that I think was substantially different from how prior Democrats had run their campaigns. It was a much more um, kind of focused on sort of like high toned sort of objections to Donald Trump and like a little bit less focused on sort of like selfish motivations to vote for the Democratic Party than you might have heard from Barack Obama or, or John Kerry or other people who went there. But I mean, again, it's not like these decisions were made like for no reason or because everybody went insane one day. Like they test the messages and they went with ones that that were testing well. It just, you know, wasn't true. And then unfortunately, it happens again in 2020. And is that for the same reason? Like, did everyone just like not fix their survey methods? Yeah, I, I mean, I think 2020 was the worst year for polling in literally decades. Um, there's never been, I mean, you have to go back, I think to like the seventies or something to get a miss um, as large as 2020 was. And so, you know, it's worth decomposing 2020's polling era into kind of two different stories. You know, the first story is this, call it like the state polling error, right? Like there was a Wisconsin poll before the election from a high quality pollster that said that Biden would win by like 20 points or 16 points or something ridiculous. He ended up winning by a third of a percent. And I think the source of that is this thing we're talking about. Like the reality is that we've seen in 2018 too, in 2016, in 2018, in 2020, we've all, we've seen consistently that polling error is heavily correlated cycle to cycle and heavily correlated with the non-college white share of the electorate. Uh, and the cause of that is basically that there's this new problem of low social trust whites not answering the phones. And it's very difficult to solve. You can't just ask people, are you low trust or not? The census doesn't tell you like what percentage of likely voters in Wisconsin are low trust or or whatever. And it's something that, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, but there aren't easy answers. And I think it does challenge the business model of, uh, of traditional polling. But I think there's a second polling. You know, 2020 was worse than 2016. In, the, in 2016, the national polls were basically right. It's just that, you know, on a state level, if the, the, you know, in some places it was too high, in some places it was too low. And the same was true in 2018. In 2020, it was even worse. In 2020, the national polls were biased by like two to three percent. And, you know, the reason for that, I think, is, is just very interesting. Like we when we do our, our polling, we can match people back to voter files. And so we can see, you know, what primaries they vote in, what, what their party registration is. And, you know, what we can see is that the percentage of people who answered our surveys who had voted in the Democratic primary was pretty steady right up until March of 2020 when it shoots up to this super elevated level and basically stays there for the rest of the election. And we're now pretty confident there's like, you can match this uh, actually with like cell phone mobility data and a bunch of other stuff that during the coronavirus pandemic, liberals responded much more. And I'm using the word liberals, not Democrats, non, non-liberal, non-white Democrats, actually, you know, this, this was less of an issue, but liberals responded to the pandemic by staying home. And we can see this with cell phone location data, like the you just literally what percentage of cell phone pings are at their home location, substantially higher for liberals than for conservatives or, or, or than for moderates. And this 
this created a big polling bias that basically conservatives were out living their lives, doing spring break, whatever, and liberals were just stuck at home, anxiously answering as many surveys as they could. And, you know, this is this is basically the bulk of why the, why the surveys were wrong. And there's like really interesting, you know, additional research that's been done since then showing that like polling error was highly correlated with like local COVID rates and all this other stuff. But it just really goes to show like all of this is pretty hard. Uh, measurement is, is hard stuff. And so you get you get more liberals and then you I guess you're specifically selecting for people who are very into like COVID non-pharmaceutical interventions, right? So like you both overestimate Joe Biden's vote share nationally, House Democrats vote share nationally. But I assume you're also specifically getting a false signal that like, stay home and be a good Fauci listener is like crushing it as a public message, right? And so like the error feeds on itself because like you are oversampling the people who are staying home because of coronavirus, which is causing you to message a lot about coronavirus, right? And so you're like tripling down on this same kind of mistake in a way that if you had known, well, like a lot of people have kind of tuned this out and maybe don't care that much. Like you just, like you would have said something else. I mean, again, because what we were saying before, you know, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, consultants, like, I don't know, like these people are professionals. Like they, I mean, I guess they like, they sort of believe in what they're doing, but like they try to run on things that they think will help them win. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it gets to, you know, I, I think one of the biggest problems, you know, in democratic politics, I guess in politics in general, is that people who decide to go and devote their life to politics are super weird. You know, we're, we're all uh, super liberal, we're super educated, uh, we live in cities. And it is very important as a technical matter, you know, for us to understand what regular people think. And because we have to persuade, you know, regular voters. Um, uh, and we also have to, you know, inspire non-voters out to vote. And we're just very demographically and attitudinally different across a whole host of measures from the people who we're trying to persuade or the people that we're trying to turn out to vote. And one really natural solution to that is to turn to measurement. But it turns out that we're so different than everyone else that even measuring the the electorate of the median voter is just like a very hard technical problem. So Republicans have the same technical difficulties as anybody else. And like they are also unrepresentative. And in some ways, they're like even weirder, like professional Republican Party staffers represent like a very idiosyncratic group of people like young, educated, city dwelling conservatives is like a really weird um, like there's like not that, you know, you I, I meet them. I live in Washington, D.C. I know people who do Republican Party politics professionally, but they're not really like anybody. Like they're not like the other people who live in D.C., but they're also not like the conservatives I meet visiting my in-laws in rural Texas. So like, how come they seem to have navigated these choppy waters uh, more effectively? At times, I mean, operating with a big financial disadvantage and, and other kinds of things. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say for the most part, they historically haven't. You know, I think there's a great survey that goes and looks at like the ideological composition of donors versus, you know, the median person in the party. 
And, you know, for Democrats, you know, the median donor, who I think is a reasonable stand-in actually for staffers, is substantially the left on both economic and social issues, though much more on social issues than economic issues. And also, you know, to the left on cosmopolitan issues, things like immigration and trade. And then on the right, you see, uh, you know, it's true that the people who staff the Republican Party are more cosmopolitan than the median Republican. But that pushes them toward the center because Republicans are, you know, right of center and it pushes Democrats away from the center. And so that's one asymmetry. But I think the other point I think is more important is that the median Republican donor is substantially to the right of the median Republican on economic issues. And I think if you look back at the last, I don't know, 40 years of uh, American politics, that has been a massive disadvantage for them. They've lost a lot of elections because the people who personally run the Republican Party have like a deep personal desire to cut taxes on rich people. And I think Donald Trump's big innovation was that he de-emphasized that. He went out, I mean, I, I think it took somebody like Donald Trump who didn't come from this weird class of, uh, you know, globalist Republicans to say, let's campaign on lowering immigration and not cutting Medicare. It's what the people want. And, you know, that to people like us, was, you know, we coded that as something very extreme. But I think what people don't realize is that Donald Trump in 2016 was rated as more moderate than basically any Republican to run for president in decades. And voters considered him to be substantially more moderate than Clinton. So I think it just goes to show it is very destructive to have your party be run by a weird set of insular elites and to not listen to regular people. And I just think that their success has really come from Donald Trump recognizing this and deciding to move closer to the median voter, even if it's something that's horrifying to hyper-educated people. Well, and I think this is important. You know, I, I was um, I was saying yesterday on Twitter that I had never I had never quite seen an out of power movement as uninterested in like talking about a governing agenda as Republicans are right now. And, you know, I have a lot of liberal followers and people were there was a lot of like, well, their agenda is fascism or, well, it's a cult of personality of Donald Trump, you know, which is to say, like, people would have a very negative affect in reiterating exactly what I was saying, which was that Republicans are not really articulating a particularly ambitious policy agenda, which to a certain viewpoint is like incredibly discreditable, right? That you might say, well, you know, Paul Ryan, like I disagree with everything that he's saying, but like he's got he's got big ideas. He's got all these charts. He's got this PDF. Uh, he could come on Ezra Klein's podcast and they can talk about the big issues of the day. Whereas like today's Republicans, it seems farcical. But I think to somebody who also, I don't know, like a more typical person, like doesn't care about politics, and also doesn't themselves have an ambitious policy agenda. Like, this just seems more moderate, that Republicans have become more like them, like more uninterested in government, less interested in writing long PDFs, and perhaps seeming non-threatening. Like, unless your passion in life is anti-racism education in K-12 schools, like, they're not saying that they're going to do very much. And that's separate from the question of like, are they going to do very much, right? I mean, I think we just saw out of the Texas state legislature, actually some very sweeping policy initiatives. But like, that's not what Kevin McCarthy is putting out there as his public message every day. Like, he's not saying we've got to make abortion illegal. We've got to flood the streets with handguns. We need tax cuts for billionaires. 
And that's like constructive politics. Like it's very actually restrained, even as you might think it seems a little zany. Yeah, I think probably the biggest single, I think, analytical mistake I see a lot of my um, friends on the left make is I think a lot of people think that voters want bold policy change. And actually, status quo bias and the desire to not see policy change is probably the single most powerful force in American politics. You know, the reality is that there is a Democratic governor in Kansas, because the previous Republican tried to slash public school funding. And there is a Republican governor in Vermont, and actually throughout most of the Northeast. In response, in Vermont, it was single payer, but in Maryland, it was because of an attempt to tax uh, a, a rain tax for asphalt. So it just turns out that voters really, you know, something I like to say is that the median voter is about 50 years old, doesn't have a college degree. Iglesias, you like to say this a lot now too. And that really means that the appetite for radical policy change is a lot smaller than people think. And, you know, if you think of the midterms, you know, one of my favorite papers, I think it's heavily uh, underrated, is by, uh, you know, Professor Joseph Bufumi. I think he's at Dartmouth. He published a paper, uh, I think it's called like Ideological Balancing in Midterms in, in 2009. And basically he went through and he looked at the past, I don't know, basically all of the post-war midterms. And, you know, what he found that I think was interesting is it's not necessarily that presidents are unpopular during midterms. Um, sometimes they are, sometimes it aren't. But even when presidents are popular, the party that controls the presidency does very badly. So like 1998, for example, Bill Clinton's approval rating was nearly 60%. And even then, you know, Republicans won the popular vote in the House by something like a point or two. And so there's this question, why is there such a giant discrepancy? Why is it that there are all of these people who personally liked Bill Clinton and then decided to vote for Republicans when they had voted for Bill Clinton presidentially just, uh, just two years before? And, you know, he goes through and he does surveys and he makes the case that it really comes from voters not wanting policy change. Like people talk a lot about, oh, you know, voters like divided government, but there's a reason why they like divided government, which is that they generally speaking don't want things to change. And, you know, this is related to another very powerful force in American politics, which uh, it needs a better name, but political scientists call it thermostatic public opinion. Basically, whenever there's a Republican president and Republicans try to do things, the public moves to the left in the opposite direction. And the more the president talks about an issue, the further they move to the left in response, which is why we saw immigration, you know, uh, the public get much more liberal on immigration during 2016, and why we saw the, the public get much more right wing on healthcare during Obama's term. And, and so, you know, it, it's interesting because I think it highlights one, this idea that voters really do not want policy change. They're very risk averse. They're very scared by the idea um, of an external force forcing them to do something outside of their control. But also it, it means that the more you talk about something, the worse it gets, which I think is the opposite of, I think, how most people think activism works. And so, you know, I, that doesn't mean you can't do things. But I think that all of us, the people who like work in politics, you know, we're really primed and really excited by trying to present things in the most, you know, radical way that you can. I think my friend calls it acid coding. And that's not actually how you win, you know, in order to get people on board with what you want, you want to make everything seem really boring, really reasonable, or you want to not talk about policy change at all. And, you know, I, I think just to go back to what you were saying, there's this interesting dichotomy where do people like us going on television and saying politically charged or racist stuff, that's like very bad, while going and saying that you want to cut taxes, you know, that's just like part of the game. 
But to regular voters, I mean, they're a lot less concerned by the former than the latter. And uh, so I think that you're right. Republicans have actually been playing very good politics in terms of just not advancing their unpopular stuff. And there are some lessons we can learn from that. Right. And then you you obviously you had the, the reverse of that, which was, you know, you saw in 2018 that regardless of what Trump's campaign was, like when he became president, what immediately happened was a rollback of people's health insurance coverage followed by a tax cut. And there was a lot of journalism about that, right? I mean, the media has the kind of, I mean, Biden is getting it now from Afghanistan, but there's this kind of like pack-like phenomenon. And so for months, there was just constant stories about healthcare policy and how Republicans want to deregulate insurance companies and cut Medicaid and like Jimmy Kimmel was going to be sad and, and all this stuff. And it was like, it was disastrous for them to have like a detailed media focus on like, I don't want to say boring, but like nothing about Republicans want lower taxes and less social spending would make you say like, holy shit, politics has gone insane this year, right? Like just someone who knows about politics, like that's just what Republicans have wanted for like many generations. Uh, But having focus on that made like a huge impact on voters versus like Donald Trump being like a Russian spy, maybe, or all the, it was like people didn't care about the stuff that is normally seen as more interesting. And the most boring stuff seems to really move people. Yeah, I think it's a real truism, you know, that I I used to always hear that people say, you know, the reason why Democrats uh, lose is that we're too intellectual. You know, we talk too much about issues and we need to communicate our values. Um, But it turns out that, you know, swing voters don't share our values. If they did, they would be liberals. (laughs) And so you know, actually, the only reason people ever voted for us was kind of this, these transactional issue positions. Uh, like if you actually go and you look at polling, you know, people generally trust Democrats. And this is this replicates in other countries, too, you know, on issues like healthcare, on looking out for the middle class, on education. And they trust Republicans on issues like taxes and crime and immigration. And, you know, politics, I think, strategically is this game of trying to focus media attention on the parts of the issue space where we have media ownership and keep it away from the parts where we don't. And it's a real it's a challenge because getting journalists to go and write a story like the Republicans want to make it easier to poison rivers. It's hard to do. And, you know, we managed to do it in 2018. And I I do think it played a big role in why we won. I think a lot of people have this very nihilistic sense of politics um, where they say, oh, you know, the only even though it's true that like a lot of these voters who switched from Obama to Trump, you know, were motivated by racial resentment or by racism. You know, they say, ah, well, there's nothing we could do about that. But if you look at approval polling, you know, uh, during Trump's term, it was his lowest point. Like the only thing that really dented approval, you know, among uh, Obama Trump voters was, you know, all of this ACA stuff and all of the tax cuts. And it actually, it played a pretty big role in why we were able to take the House back in 2018. Like there's a real sense in which the more materialistic we can make politics, the better Democrats do. And I think it's clear that those are the dynamics, but it's very difficult because I think that the people who work, you know, the the people like us don't want, I don't know, they're not excited by the materialist stuff. And so there are a lot of forces, even on our side, that push us toward this kind of post-materialist politics in a way that's counterproductive. Well, let's take a break, and and I want to dig into that idea. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. So I sort of hear what you're saying about Democrats and, and staffers seem in some ways less emotionally engaged in materialist politics. On the other hand, like the Democratic agenda in Congress is in fact very heavily focused on uh, these kind of material concerns, right? So it's you know it's it's child tax credit, it's um, subsidies for childcare, it's uh, dental benefits for Medicare beneficiaries. It's you know it's it's a bunch of stuff like that, right? It's like um, Shore recommended kind of stuff. What strikes me is that it does not succeed in dominating the agenda. Like when Donald Trump was trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, it's not that like Democrats in the House talked about health care. It's that media coverage of politics was mostly about health care. Whereas with a few exceptions, I think since Biden has been president, this kind of agenda that he's been trying to push has just not really been the dominant storyline, right? It's not what a sort of casual politics fan would not say to themselves, oh, this is what American politics in 2021 is about, even though a like super literal minded person who like watches the congressional agenda would say, okay, what Democrats are doing is like this healthcare stuff, this childcare stuff, this infrastructure stuff, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's not like the media is full of well, I I, I kind of do feel like on Afghanistan, the media is full of right wingers who are trying to sabotage the Biden presidency. But separate from that, like prior to mid-August, like that's not what was going on. Like most of the people doing journalism are left of center, clearly like really did not like Donald Trump. I think almost all voted for Biden, whether or not they were enthusiastic about him. But the coverage does not like reflect. I, I mean, they're like their job is not to help Democrats win elections, but like they've been doing their job in a way that makes it very hard to sort of keep people focused on sort of transactional policy. Yeah, I mean, I I'm in a rough spot where. I think it is true. And there's like a lot of political science evidence behind this that like, you know, the coverage choices of the media end up having a really, really big impact on public opinion and on polling and on the, you know, fates um, of the Democratic Party. But the challenge is, you know, one, I'm not an expert on why the media chooses to report on what it does. But the second is that 
A lot of this is, you know, endogenous. A point you make a lot is that the problem isn't that the media doesn't want to write about Biden's economic agenda. It's, you know, it's that the readers don't want to read about Biden's economic agenda. Um, but I do want to put a different spin on it than normal, which is, you know, I remember once I was talking to a journalist who did some work, I think, for Yahoo News, where I think during the 2012 election, he wrote like, you know, some basic financial explainers, how each of the two economic tax plans would affect people's finances. And, you know, what's interesting is that, you know, it's not that it didn't get a lot of clicks. It got a reasonable number of clicks. It's that it didn't really get the right kind of clicks. And so I just think there's a really underrated structural thing. Again, you know, I'm not an expert in this space, but, you know, I actually I was analyzing, you know, some anonymized uh, web traffic microdata. And what was really fascinating, you know, if you look at Fox News overall, if you look by unique people, if you just say in the last month, who's gone and read a Fox News article, only like 48 percent of Fox News viewers in that sense voted for Joe Biden. So like a little bit more Republican in the country, but not that much. But if you look on an impression weighted basis, then it's like 12 percent. And, you know, the reason is that there is a small set of maybe like five or 10 percent of visitors who visit foxnews.com like a 100 times a month. And those people are super interested in politics and super, super right wing. And so I do think, you know, something that's really interesting is that in the old days, you know, back when you could only buy a newspaper once, you could only watch the nightly news once. Um, but now that we're in this cable news world and this online news world, there's, there's this segment of super, super politically engaged people who can consume a hundred times more political content than everyone else. And those people also, you know, are richer and more educated and have higher CTMs um, than everyone. And so I think that this really pushes incentives in a bad place where I think regular people actually do kind of care about like how material things are going to impact them. But all of the incentives for national media organizations is to cater to this you know, very hyper-polarized subset of the electorate. I don't have any solutions to that per se, um, but I, I, I do think it's an issue. Yeah, and I mean, you know, I mean, obviously just part of it, right? I mean, if you do if you do digital media, right, and you're talking about an audience of working age people, you have a much better chance, like white collar people who are checking your website while they're supposed to be working is like a much they not only have higher incomes and like better ad rates, but they just like have more time to be reading your content. And they're also just like more likely to be interested in reading as well as having more more time to go do it. Right. So you kind of over index. Right. If you particularly if you're sort of left of center media, you end up over indexing on the segment of the left of center population that is highly educated and skews much more left on sort of social and cosmopolitan values and probably cares about economic type stuff, but not as much. I mean, at least not as directly. They are not the beneficiaries of Democratic Party anti-poverty proposals or efforts to extend dental coverage to Medicare, right? Like an elderly person who can't afford to get their teeth cleaned is just like probably not reading a lot of progressive digital media, you know? And they maybe are watching Fox, which is not telling them 
about this story, which would be interesting to them, I think, if they heard about it. So then you're really you're left with the kind of old fashioned network news, right, as a way that you sort of can reach that older audience. But it's like I go like months at a time without thinking about the nightly news on NBC as like a thing, like as a professional journalist, I forget that this exists. It's like beyond comprehension to me that somebody would sit down at 7 p.m., turn on like the news for 22 minutes, and that's how they would understand what's happening in the world. But it still seems to me like it like it matters a lot precisely because it's so like it's so alien to me, right? Like it reaches people who are not news junkies necessarily, but do consume something. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of my favorite, we're all very strange facts is that, you know, the median American watches about five hours a day of television. That's like, that's a median number. There are people who watch a substantial number of people who watch a lot more. That's per day. But like, you know, those people mostly, when you look at swing voters, I think something that's really interesting, and this is good news for the most part, is that swing voters mostly don't get their news from Fox News. They don't get their news from Breitbart. Like disinformation is mostly doesn't reach them. Um, it's mainly conservatives who share crazy stuff with each other. But you know, they also don't, they obviously don't watch MSNBC and they aren't reading Vox. Um, and for the most part, they're getting their news from the nightly news. It's actually, you know, the network news broadcasts are probably the single most important things or, you know, what ends up on the morning shows. And it's funny because it's not something that we consume at all. Like personally, I I should force myself to watch it every night. I, 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 I don't. Um, uh, it's very much not for us, even though it's very important. Just to give a sense also, of, you know, the power of some of this social media stuff. You know, we, we've done a lot of polling. Um, and something that's really interesting is just that, you know, when you look at this approval, uh, you know, some of the approval stuff uh, around Afghanistan, like Twitter users fell much, much more, like people who are consuming Twitter news than the overall population, which just kind of shows, you know, how uh, how disconnected, I don't know, 90% of the population doesn't, doesn't watch, uh, get news from Twitter. So just another direction I want to go in is I really think that in some ways, you know, the problems of where we are are overdetermined in that there are just a lot of structural ways in which highly educated highly politically engaged people have disproportionate power. Like, you know, we, we were just talking about how from a capitalistic perspective, it makes a lot of sense to focus on them when determining media coverage. They're a lot more likely to donate. They're a lot more likely to run for office. They're a lot more likely to be journalists. And all of these things are true and are increasingly true. And at the same time, you know, this group of people, highly educated, highly politically engaged folks, are also now way to the left of where they were 10 years ago because of education polarization. There's a lot of different pathways for how we got to where we were, but I think all of them have gotten worse. So something something you talk about to pivot a little bit is that these kind of broad trends seem to exist globally, right? And you shouldn't, you know, obviously, like what happens in America matters a lot to American politics, but that like in a big picture sense, you see these same kind of uh, polarizing trends along education lines happening uh, throughout kind of Western democracies. So it like it probably reflects something more fundamental than like, I don't know, like idiosyncratic choices by particular people. Yeah, you know, I, I think the biggest mistake that people made going back to the happy place of the 2016 election again, was analyzing Trump 
you know, idiosyncratically or psychoanalyzing him. You know, there are all these people who are like, oh, you know, people are voting, voting for him because he was a celebrity host or because he's a winner or all this other stuff. And I think that the right way to look at 2016 is that really everywhere in the West, there was this underserved electoral niche of people who were economically moderate to center left and had very right wing views on immigration and other cultural issues. And basically everywhere you've seen populist right wing candidates go and fill that niche. And then when this happens, we've seen really big coalition changes with previously right wing educated professionals moving to the left and previously left wing working class voters moving uh, moving to the to the right. And this has happened in France, it's happened in Germany, it's happened in Sweden and Britain, really everywhere in the West. Um, you know, it's even starting to happen in Spain and Portugal. You know, we've seen these trends happen. And Donald Trump was just an expression of that. And I think that, you know, in the context of US politics, there's a really important point that it means that 2016 was really in a lot of ways about issues. And I think that's that's a radical statement to a lot of people. But if you go, you know, we, we did a survey. And if you looked at folks who agreed with us on healthcare and disagreed with us on immigration, that group of people, Barack Obama got about 60% of that group of people and Hillary Clinton got about 40. And that's kind of the story of the whole election. And so I think one big takeaway is just all of this stuff that's happening is a lot more concrete uh, and driven more by concrete issues than people would think. Um, but I think the other point is just that, yeah, this clearly is like a big structural trend that's happening everywhere. It's not about Donald Trump. Even if Donald Trump chooses not to run again, this isn't going to go away. But so how did immigration get to be this kind of anchor point issue? I mean, I remember I'm I'm like pretty old. I'm I'm 40. I'm bald. You know, I got a kid, uh, but I'm not I'm not that old. And I remember in 2007. I think, covering an immigration debate in Congress. And, you know, Bush was pushing for immigration reform. There were liberals like Ted Kennedy who were really working with him on that. There were moderate Republicans like John McCain who were working with him on that. Uh, But there were also liberals like Bernie Sanders who were very opposed to this immigration effort. And there were right-wingers like Tom Tancredo who were opposed to it. And Lou Dobbs was on CNN uh, constantly talking about how this was terrible. And like what we all said as journalists was that this was not a super partisan issue. And this was like, you know, I'm not talking about like 1971, like American politics isn't polarized. We have weak parties, right? Like, they, you know, these books were already out, Red America versus Blue America. But immigration was seen as an issue that wasn't like that. And it was hard to predict where different members of Congress would come down unless you like picked up the phone and asked them what they thought. And then very rapidly, this became a sort of like organizing force in American politics, I guess, during Obama's presidency. But was that a strategy of his? Well, you know, if you go and you look at the polling in 2006, there was basically no gap. Like Pew has a time series on this. There was no gap at all between Democrats and Republicans on attitudes toward immigration. And I like to tease, you know, the older Democrats I know, where it's like, you know, if you're 55 and you're a Democrat and you were a Democrat, then you decent chance you were, you know, you were, you were against immigration. Um, and we've kind of gotten about that. Wait, so there, was, so there was no gap, but they were also like mixed feelings in both parties. Yeah, it was, it, 
it was it was like kind of you know it, the question was something like you know do you think immigrants make us stronger or, you know what or, or whatever and you know it was like pretty mixed for both democrats and republicans and you know it's happened since then starting in 2006 it's just kind of straight lined up so that now it's like almost all you know uh, self-reported democrats something like 80 80 85 percent have like pro-immigrant immigration attitudes and on the republican side things have just kind of stayed steady um, uh, at where they were. And so I think that's an interesting, you know, paradox here, which is that immigration is more popular than it's ever been. Though I think ultimately, you know, increasing immigration levels is still probably a below water idea, though a lot less than it used to be. So it's not that the country is, is getting more anti-immigrant or getting more right wing or getting or whatever. The issue is the salience has changed. Like it used to be that your immigration attitudes were uncorrelated with who you voted for. And now they've become very correlated. And some of that is that a lot of liberals who previously, you know, might have had some conservative ideas have changed their minds, you know, people like Bernie Sanders. But a lot of it is also sorting that basically you had a lot of the pro-immigration Republicans that were out there have sent, you know, who were disproportionately educated have switched to become Democrats. And a lot of the working class white and non-white people who had immigration skeptical attitudes have switched to become Republicans. And so, you know, I think just talking about these broader trends, I, I want to go back further in history, which is, you know, all of these trends have been happening everywhere and they've ultimately been happening for a very long time. And it's worth getting at why this is happening. And I think this, this will tell a story with immigration too, which is, you know, I like to tell a story that immediately after World War II, there was about 4% of the population had a college degree, or at least the electorate. If you go out to now in 2020, that number is more like 40%. So there's been this massive, massive shift in the percentage of the uh, population that has a degree. And just to go in a, uh, another factoid is, you know, in the 40s, 80% of the population hadn't even graduated from high school. And that's a statistical category that barely exists anymore. It's something like four or 5%. Yeah, I actually think that's super duper important because a lot of people sort of know this stuff about like education and working class and they have some ideas about like the New Deal. And I do think it's important to understand that like at least in educational terms, like the New Deal era working class is essentially a class that does not exist today. Right now, we can think about like wh what that means and, and how it is. But like the people who were voting for FDR were people who didn't have high school degrees and college graduates like were still like running all kinds of things like there were doctors and CEOs of companies, but it was not an electoral constituency like at all. Right. Like you you couldn't tell. Whereas today that like didn't finish high school mass, you know, I, I don't know what, what like what what class vocabulary you want to use them. But like those people are all dead. Like they're not they did. They didn't become Republicans. They they like literally gone. No, I mean, that's that's it's exactly right. And so, you know, I think that in the 1940s, it's as you just said, these hyper educated people, they still existed. They still wrote political theory. They still ran basically every institution in the world or every political party. But they still knew <laughs> They knew that the public, like back then you couldn't fool yourself. Like you couldn't be in a, in a bubble. Like it was very clear that the rest of the population, um, didn't agree with their views on, uh, on social issues. And so there was a lot of incentive for center left elites to, to not 
push on these things. Um, you know, the, I, I like to call it, you know, there was a lot of messaging restraint and preference falsification. And, you know, I think one of the few times this broke, you know, the 1972 presidential election, you know, one, there was an acceleration of education polarization, like McGovern did unusually bad in West Virginia and unusually good in the cities. And But like, you know, he ran the 2016 Hillary Clinton campaign in 1970. In 1972, it went very, very poorly for him. And so I think that that there was a lot of incentive to engage in a lot of restraint. And I think that now, now that, you know, this class of people that was like minuscule is now like 40% of the country, it's a lot easier. Like all of these people can now live in entirely super educated and super liberal bubbles. Um, and that can, uh, and, and the incentives for this restraint is a lot, uh, you know, are a lot lower. And so I think you can kind of see the, you know, last 20 years of politics as, you know, the democratic elites increasingly feeling like they don't have to be as restrained as they used to be. And to some extent, that's that's true. There are all of these demographic trends that have helped. The country is much more secular. It's much more educated. It's a lot less racist um, under a lot of different measures, you know, than it was 20 years ago or 40 years ago. But those trends have happened a lot faster in the areas where they live. You know, New York has changed a lot faster than the country overall. And I think it's led to them overshooting. And I think that, you know, that that's led to this polarization, premature polarization on all of these different issues that have caused us problems. And immigration is like a big symptom of that. Uh, well, you know, I, I think, you know, you, you talk about overshooting, but you, you used a term earlier that I think people may not know, um, preference falsification, which I think is sort of sort of important to this dynamic, because part of what's going on is that you may not be able to win an election with like college graduates, but there are enough college graduates around that like if you yourself are a college graduate and you mostly socialize with college graduates and you live in a highly educated part of the country and you exist in a virtual community in which other college graduates participate to state that you have views that are more like those of a 50-something working class person is like going to be a very, you know, like a like an unpleasant experience. I think I, people sometimes overstate this and they're like, uh, there was this like kind of crazy Ann Applebaum article about Puritans and stuff like that. It's like not the end of the world if your friends yell at you, but like people don't want to be yelled at by their friends. And it's no longer sort of, I think, People in the 40s, the like tiny minority of educated elites must have just like lied a lot to people to try to make their ideas and attitudes seem more acceptable to the public. And other I don't know what, like they like went to their fancy clubs and they were like, ha ha ha, you know, like we've really got one over on them or, or, or something. Um, and it just feels like that doesn't that doesn't work today that like when Biden tries to strike a sort of America first tone on something like everybody gets mad at him right like in a very sort of public way and you know there's like something good about that like i don't want to be like everyone should lie more because you know there's like there's reasons to be honest and there's reasons to want politicians to not be lying constantly but like i do feel like traditionally lying is like an important an important part of politics yeah you know i i think to frame this back in terms of power hyper-educated uh, liberals. We have a lot of power in a lot of different ways. You know, obviously, as I said before, we vote more, we donate more, we run for office more, we 
you know, disproportionately staff the media and political campaigns. And so that gives us a lot of power and we have a lot more power than we did, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago due to a lot of complicated social forces. And I think that what we're seeing is us as a class exercising this power and successfully being able to recast the Democratic Party in our image. And I think there are some upsides to this, though I think, you know, morally, you know, one statistic that I like is that if you look at people who voted for Joe Biden, there are three times as many moderate or conservative non-white people who voted for Joe Biden as there are very liberal white people who voted for Joe Biden. And yet the latter group is like infinitely more represented, you know, in terms of the media, in terms of, of really anything. Um, and I think the story is that, look, I mean, I, I it's a little morally dubious that like a hyper-educated, hyper-privileged group of people is like, you know, maybe our views are better and maybe it's good um, that we care more about things like climate change um, than, than uh, you know, working class black people or something. But I think that the real impact of this is that as we've been expressing this power, the non-liberal masses who, you know, are a majority of Democrats are leaving the party. And that's true for non-liberal white people. And it's true for non-liberal non-white people. Like, you know, we didn't talk that much about 2020, but there was a 9% swing against Democrats uh, among Hispanics in 2020. And nearly all of that swing was something like a 20 to 30% decline among the 40% of Hispanics who identify as conservatives. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's true, you know, part of the ways that, you know, we used to exercise constraint was just like not being as honest about what we want. But now, uh, now that we're not doing that anymore, I, I just want to warn there are some downsides. Right. No, I mean, you know, there there obviously are. You know, and I, I think this point about, you know, Hispanic voters, you know, people have been talking this kind of decline to death in different ways. But, you know, something that I find a little frustrating about the dialogue is that the group of people who kind of do this professionally in Democratic Party circles, you know, they're very attuned now to this issue of erosion of Latino support. They're very interested in getting people to pay attention to it and, and do something. But they also talk constantly about like misinformation and well, we need to make more investment. And obviously, like misinformation is bad. Uh, investment is helpful in politics. But it seems like they don't want to articulate up the chain that like you have to try to imitate the views of the voters who you want to get to go vote for you, right? And that like a lot of Latino people have moderate policy opinions. And if you combine having moderate policy opinions with seeming like you are not paranoid about Latino immigrants wrecking the country, they might come vote for you. But if you are strongly pro-immigration, but like also say all kinds of things that they disagree with, then they're not going to vote for you. And that's like really banal, but it's like it's hard to get the votes of people if you keep delivering messages that they don't agree with. Yeah, you know, I, it's not a coincidence that the two groups that have swung the most from the Democratic Party in the past four years, you know, non-college whites and non-whites, also happen to be the people who are most likely to identify as moderate or conservative. Like, I think these two problems, for the most part, are really the same problem, that working class, moderate and conservative people 
don't feel like they're being offered anything by the branding, um, uh, by either the branding or the policies of, uh, of Democrats. And I, I'm not sure what the solution is. My guess is that it's to try to sound more moderate and try to have more working class messengers. But I think it's worth being clear in the diagnosis about the problem that, you know, if you go and you look, 20% of the population is liberal, 40% is moderate, 40% is conservative. Contrary to, you know, what a lot of ideology truthers will tell you, these ideological self-identification labels are actually very important. And I don't know, we should, we should take seriously, you know, that 80% of the country doesn't necessarily see things the way that we do. Okay, but here, here's here's the thing, because, you know, there there are a lot of truthers about this. And one thing that's true is that it's like pretty easy for me to sit here and like Google up uh, some polls that are going to show that like 70% of people uh, want stricter gun control and are very worried about climate change and, you know, a million other things. And like, yeah, like maybe like defunding police is like not so popular, but like all of these kind of mainstream liberal ideas, like they have these great polls. And so, you know, these moderates, like they really want this progressive agenda where we're going to tax the rich and we're going to do all this other stuff. Um, And that's like, I don't know. I mean, I was like kind of brought up in that tradition. Um, And it's like, I I do like I, I see I see those polls everywhere. Uh, showing like tons of liberal positions on all kinds of issues. Yeah, I mean, there. I could talk about this forever, but you know, I think there's a real, I think there's a real problem, <laughs> which is, and I, I say this as someone who works in the polling industry, which is that the market for issue research is basically non-existent except for propaganda. That basically all issue polling that you see, and I have friends who are employed in this complex, are funded by issue advocacy groups that are specifically making polls for the purpose of being able to say, ah, it turns out 80% of people support this or support that. I think Gallup, you know, they've been doing this for a really long time, is actually like unusually good in this regard at being good at crafting questions in a way that doesn't cause problems. Like just to talk for like a minute about, you know, one of the big problems is there's something called survey acquiescence bias, which is a fancy way of saying if you ask someone taking a survey, whether they support a policy or oppose a policy, they basically like if they if you ever give them a yes or no question, they usually say yes. This is why ballot measure polling, for example, tends to outperform the actual election result by like 10 points. There's this truism with ballot measures. If you're not at 60, then, you know, you're going to lose. Um, and that's like one of the big mechanisms for why some of the good polling in, instead of, you know, doing a yes or no question will present alternatives. So it will be things like, you know, which of these two statements is closer to your views? Do you think that regulations on guns should be more strict or less strict? And when you poll things like that, suddenly it becomes 50 50. Uh, and so it really just turns out. Uh, and, you know, another way to illustrate this is nobody does this because pollsters, you know, are all liberals. But if you poll questions like, should we cap income taxes at 35%, you know, like Republican ideas, those also end up being super popular. And so, you know, what I would say is that, you know, the reality is that all of our proposals are not nearly as popular as you'd think. You know, I think I've pulled something like 100 different policy measures since the beginning of the year. And, you know, something that comes out is, uh, I think something like 60% of the proposals that we've done, you know, are above water and popular. And if you look at things that like Joe Biden wouldn't support, but AOC would, like 30% of those things are popular. Uh, and I think that's great news. I think, you know, as a progressive, we can focus on that 
you know, on the that the left could focus on that 30 percent, you know, the Democratic Party can focus on that 60 percent. Like, I'm not a nihilist. Like, some things legitimately are popular and some are unpopular. But we shouldn't fool ourselves. Like, I think there's a lot of damage that gets done by all of this propaganda that tells us that all of our stuff are extremely popular. And, you know, the reason why it's bad is that if you think, oh, all of our stuff is really popular, but we're still losing elections, you'll then turn and say, ah, the reason why is because of the corruption of the Democratic Party or the fake news that's getting into people's heads. When the reality is that people agree with Republicans on a lot of things, particularly on taxes, on immigration, on the scope of government, and agree with Democrats on a lot of things like healthcare and education. Um, and if we don't understand this trade-off and you know the implications of it in terms of how we should talk about things and what we should do, then we'll lose. And that's, you know, I mean, that that sort of loops back to where we started, right? Which is that, you know, it, there's a there's a craft to all of this. And, you know, if you don't know, like, if you don't actually know what people want to hear, it's really challenging to make decisions. Like, even if you want to say, I mean, which I think is reasonable, like so, sometimes, you know, something's like really important and you want to do it, even if it's not popular. Uh, but then like you don't want to talk about it. Right. Like You, you want to try to make sure you can do it in secret. And certainly like you don't want to do 20 different things that are unpopular, like all at once. Right. Like you have to think hard. OK, which of these is actually the most important or what can I get away with doing with people not paying attention? Or conversely, you might have an idea that like you're not that excited about that doesn't seem that important, but it's like everybody loves it. So, you know, you should you should talk about it. Right. Like like I don't think, you know, I, I don't think that conservative policy elites sincerely believe that whether or not a high school teaches people about the New York Times Magazine 1619 project is like one of the most important topics in the political domain. Like they have just decided, you know, to put this on the agenda for various reasons. And like, I don't know, like, that's fine. Like, that's you're allowed to play the game of politics, but you have to have some sense of what's going on or you're not going to you're not going to do it right. And particularly, like, if 60 percent of your ideas are popular, it's like really not great to like drag them down and lose over other ideas that then also don't happen because you lost the election anyway. Yeah. You know, I when I advocate for, you know, popularism, something I do like to say is that, look, if we implemented every single democratic policy proposal that was extremely popular, it would be radically transformative um, and change this country. And so I don't, I don't think it's anything to feel bad about. I think the other thing is I think it's important not to drink our own Kool-Aid in that there are there are issues that might not substantively be very important, but like might be good politically. But I think as a party, we're very bad at understanding what those issues are. Where, you know, if you look at background checks, for example, objectively, they're not, you know, a lot of progressive gun policy is not like super important, you know, in terms of lives saved in the scheme of things. And I think you outlined this really well, but we have this like incorrect belief that it's like this massive political winner. And I think there's a lot of examples of us just like fooling ourselves into thinking that all of these things um, are actually really good and really motivating. And so that's that's why measurement is so important. Um, otherwise, you really can end up wasting a lot of time and a lot of brain space on stuff that doesn't matter or might be counterproductive. So, you know, it's both like it's important to measure, but it's also hard, which is where we started. And do you think from a technical standpoint, like has this been 
improved at all? Like when people head into like midterms are just like is is objectively difficult. And, you know, there's a limited amount that campaign tactics can do for you. But are the people making the tactical decisions in the Nevada, New Hampshire and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania Senate races? Like, are they going to be equipped with accurate information about the lay of the land? Or are we really kind of flying blind here? I mean, these are all very hard tactical problems. And, you know, we'll see in a year how well pollsters end up doing. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, these big picture insights of like, you know, we should try to figure out what's popular, we should not, uh, and not do things that aren't, or this understanding that actually, you know, every, all of these policy priorities aren't necessarily super popular. I think that the people who work in the Democratic Party, at least in terms of actual literal campaigns, the people at the DSCC or, you know, whatever, I think do understand these things and generally are pretty pragmatic minded. And I think that makes sense if from an incentive perspective, it's their job to win elections and they care very much about whether or not they win elections. But, you know, I, I think the big danger not to go into a whole tangent is just that these people in control a smaller and smaller part of the Democratic Party brand and even Democratic Party spending that like now super PACs, um, foundations, issue advocacy groups, you know, liberal media all play like a much more important part of the story. And I think that because their day to day lives matter are less tied to winning elections and I'm not faulting them, they're not like I think that the first people who work in campaigns at this point are very educated about like all the problems with different kinds of polls and like how to measure things. And, you know, I think they're doing the best that they can. But if you're a liberal journalist, if you're someone that box, that, that's not your job. You're not going to do that. And, uh, you know, that will lead you to make, you know, different decisions. Those decisions will actually end up being impactful. So I think it is like kind of a big issue that I think if it was just up to Joe Biden to determine the branding of the Democratic Party, um, I don't know if we win. Winning midterms is a very difficult thing, but I think that, you know, we'd probably mostly do the right things. Um, but there's a whole other mass of people who have less incentives to get this right and study it closely and who might not see it necessarily as their job, even if, you know, what they do is very important. So it's kind of a hard situation. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, I, the media is, I think, at the the sort of like the hardest angle off there where I think you can most credibly say like that's not the job. But there is this, you know, middle layer of like nonprofits and advocacy organizations and activist groups and then foundations that fund them and super PAC donors where, I mean, it like it kind of is your job to win elections. I mean, it's it's not like just your job to win elections if you are like an environmental organization and you're trying to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. But like, there's no way to reduce carbon dioxide emissions that doesn't involve people who want to do that winning elections. You know, and uh, I don't know. I I wish I wish they would all take that a little more seriously. Well, I'll say because you know I don't want to be too nihilist about this. I I think that. You know, everyone, oh, nearly everyone in the system, you know, AOC very earnestly wants Democrats to not lose control of Congress in 2022. And, you know, that's why I think that even though, you know, people are subject to their ideological biases and that's like pushing them to do one thing or another, I think everyone does really earnestly, earnestly want to win. And I think there are some like technical, technical problems are underrated here. Um, I've personally seen in my you know, in my work, you know, um, I try to sell this kind of stuff for a living, is that there's just a lot more interest, I think, both on the left and in the center 
you know, and like trying to be more careful about what we say. I think that 2020 did go very differently than I think other theories would would predict. And I think that um, folks are changing their behavior slowly in response to that. Whether that's enough, I don't know. It's very hard to win midterms. All right. Uh, well, I will let you go after that. Uh, but thank you very much, uh, David Shore. And thanks, as always, to our sponsors. Thanks to our producer, Nat Smith-Savdog. Uh, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday.